Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Monday, the day of the week that we read back some of the messages that you've sent in uh, recently. Uh, Rob, if you don't mind, today I think I'm going to start off with... A response. Wow, this was a quick turnaround. This is a response we already got to part one of our series on the seven-day week, which ran last Thursday. Uh, Rob, you, you cool if I do this one? Go for it. All right, this is from Kennedy. Kennedy says, hi, I just finished listening to uh, the part one episode of the seven-day week. I was intrigued because I have time space synesthesia so i see time in the space around me including weeks months and years if it hasn't already been done this would make an interesting podcast topic i I don't know i don't know much about this this sounds fascinating though also while listening i kept hoping you would bring up menstruation as a biological or natural cause for weeks or months i saw a post a while ago hypothesizing that women may have been the first to track time in a month-like pattern because of 28-day menstrual cycles a period is also often five to seven days just wondering if you looked into the influence of this on our current system of months and weeks thank you for the fantastic episode sincerely kennedy well, thanks, Kennedy. Yes, I, I think these are both really interesting ideas. In part one, we talked uh, about one of the main functions of the week being as an organizing principle for what uh, the historian that we cited in that episode, David Hinken, calls stock taking, but we were also referring to as uh, time conceptualization or mental time travel. Basically, the week plays a role in helping us mentally organize events in the recent past and near future. And I think on this front, yeah, it's it's totally worth remembering that as much as we all to some extent uh, visualize time, some people really visualize time or really have even no choice but to visualize time in a, in a very concrete and vivid way. Uh, I remember a while back having a conversation with a, with a family member who was, if I recall correctly, I, I think the way she was describing things was talking about having... Uh, a form of something like time space synesthesia where they would they would vividly perceive time as a type of ribbon that rotates in a circle around them and there was some kind of visual cue making parts of that ribbon um i don't know like marking them off in terms of days or or weeks or months interesting yeah i mean I, this instantly makes me think like whatever's going on with that uh, with that person's individual um uh, you know, uh, synesthesia experience, like how would it differ if they had grown up you know, with a different perception of time, a different calendar system, etc.? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on the second question you raise about the origins of the week, and I guess this would not necessarily be a strict seven-day week, but some kind of time organization unit on the order of like five to seven days or so, uh, on the origins of that possibly being linked to the human menstrual cycle, uh, I, I don't know if anybody has any direct evidence of that, and I don't know what that would be, maybe like – I don't know, written records from the ancient world, from, you know, Mesopotamia or anywhere, uh, making this connection themselves, uh, tying the earliest uh, concepts of weeks to the menstrual cycle. But 
it seems like inherently a very plausible biological basis for that kind of organizing principle. Um, uh, kind of on the same level as like the, the agricultural market cycle hypothesis, right? You know, there are some fairly universal human experiences that are going to be happening in cycles on the order of, you know, some group of days that subdivides the lunar month. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we, we do know that in, in different cultures, there would be uh, rituals and, um, and practices associated with, with menstrual cycles. So, uh, yeah, I initially thought the same thing. I thought, well, there, there have to be some papers out there that discuss this, um, that, that, it, that at least consider this connection, uh, if not present some sort of uh, evidence like we're discussing here. But I, I, I really couldn't find much out there. Uh, not to say that my research skills are are perfect and above reproach, but if there was if there was something good out there, I missed it, uh, and I would love to be corrected if, if anyone out there has a paper or or in fact this post that is mentioned, uh, I would love to read more. Well, yeah, I guess anything you came across that was like a biological reasoning that you were hypothesizing to underlie the 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 week. Um, it would be hard to establish a, a clear link. I mean, I think that was also true when you were looking at that uh, paper, paper in the journal, uh, what Chronobiology International, that was trying to find some kind of biological origin for um, for the seven day week. I mean, it, whatever it is, you'd have a hard time showing like, yes, this is definitely the reason. But I think some things seem at least uh, prima facie plausible. And, and yeah, I, I would definitely say menstruation is one of them. Yeah, it's actually briefly mentioned. It's mentioned only once in that uh, Reinberg et al. paper in Chronobiology. Uh, they write, uh, quote, We wish to point out the endogenous roughly 30-day menstrual rhythm of women, which also confers survival rate, is integrated into the complex multiple period biological time structure. This raises the question of whether the uh, roughly seven-day rhythms are in any way of uh, survival value for the human or other species. So they're thinking about it, but uh, that's really all there is about menstrual cycles in this particular paper. But again, if someone knows of some some more research, writing, contemplation out there uh, about this possible connection, uh, shoot it our way. We'd love to read about it. Uh, but either way, yeah, uh, strong idea. Great email, Kennedy. Oh, 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 Rob, there was one other. Uh, do you mind if I read this next message about lava boats? It's pretty short. Yeah, go for it. So this is in response to the episode we did, I guess, a couple weeks ago now uh, about lava boats in, in sort of both ways you could interpret that. Uh, I talked for a long time about uh, pumice rafts, you know, mm -hmm. these volcanic rocks that end up floating on the surface of the ocean and make these uh, vast undulating parking lots in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, but then we also talked about the idea of, well, could you sail a boat on a on a flowing river of lava like you might see at one of the volcanoes in Hawaii and Zach had some uh, a great point about the the latter idea about trying to actually sail a boat on on a river of lava so Zach says hey Robert and Joe I was thinking about the idea of riding a superheated steel boat from lava into water one thing that came to mind was the Leidenfrost effect depending on your momentum when entering the water uh, and style of boat, flat bottom or keeled, you could potentially be in for a wild ride. Love the show. It sure helps keep this trucker entertained. Thanks for all you guys and your team do, Zach. Uh, Zach, this is a this is a great point. Uh, the Leidenfrost effect for anybody out there who's not familiar is a uh, is a really interesting physics principle that. Uh, essentially it has a counterintuitive effect. Uh, so like if you uh, heat up a pan and you dribble some water into it, 
uh, you know, the water, the heat, the heat from the bottom of the metal pan will transfer into the water and it'll start to boil. But if you get the pan really hot, like ripping hot before you dribble the water in, something totally different happens. Instead of it pooling on the bottom of the pan and then boiling and then boiling off into steam, the droplets of water will instead appear to float over the surface of the pan and kind of skitter around madly. Uh, and they actually, in this form, take a longer time to boil off than they do if the pan is at a lower temperature. And the reason for that is this principle known as the Leidenfrost effect. It's where uh, when there's a huge temperature difference, the uh, the steam that comes off of that you know, piece of uh, that, that little droplet of water creates an insulating layer. It's sort of like a cushion of water vapor that's instantly uh, vaporized that makes it take longer for the heat to transfer into that droplet of water and essentially makes it float over the surface of the pan. And you can imagine a similar thing going on with uh, any kind of superheated piece of metal coming into contact with water, maybe uh, sort of like dancing around on a, on a cushion of steam. Oh wow! Yeah, I didn't really uh, think about this in our initial uh, discussion. Yeah, this 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 might make for a really wild ride for sure. Yeah. All right, we have a response to a vault episode here from Jim in New Jersey, uh, specifically our catch-up episode of Invention, which we recently re-aired. Uh, Jim says. Robert and Joe, there was a Heinz processing plant in my hometown of South Central Pennsylvania. A family friend worked there. He refused to eat Heinz ketchup based on what he witnessed in the processing. Uh, fig figuratively, he saw how the sausage was made, but literally he saw how the ketchup was made. But he would eat other brands of ketchup. His family would tease him and ask, do you think they make ketchup any differently? I didn't think about this. Is is Heinz going to come after us with their lawyers for reading this? Ah, whatever. I, I, I like Heinz ketchup. There you go. Unpaid endorsement. <laughs> yeah, anyway, he continues. You ended your invention of, of the ketchup episode by asking if uh, you had any listeners who had never eaten ketchup. I can't be that listener, but I know one person whom I can guarantee never tasted ketchup, my father. My dad was an extremely picky eater. He wouldn't eat any foods that contained tomatoes in any form. No ketchup, spaghetti, and sauce, pizza, sliced tomatoes, etc. He would eat spaghetti with melted butter on it. <laughs> tomatoes was only one of his forbidden uh, foods, but it was probably the one that cast the widest net. Unfortunately, dad died years ago, so I can't follow up with him about this. Due to his tomato aversion, I never tasted pizza until age 15, when on the way home from a Saturday school trip, the bus stopped at Pizza Hut for dinner. After one taste, I practically moaned, what is this food of the gods? Jim in New Jersey. Oh, wow, Jim. Well, so I, I can sort of relate because I never went that far. Like, I always liked pizza and stuff, but um, unless it was in a highly uh, sort of processed and, and sort of hidden form. I actually did not much like tomatoes when I was a little kid. Uh, there, there, there were weird exceptions, though. I mean, I did like some things with tomatoes in them. But like most of the time, if, if there were visible chunks of tomato in something, I did not like it, did not want it. And I don't know what changed. I mean, now tomatoes are one of my favorite foods. But, uh, but yeah, as a kid, I, I remember being grossed out. Uh, yeah, I don't remember being super into just like raw tomatoes when I was a little kid. My my son, however, has always eaten them. He's a he's a much better eater than I was at his, uh, you know, growing up. Um, 
like a pretty early age, he would pick up a tomato and just eat it like an apple. So yeah, uh, no problem there. But you know, if you're not in, you know, even if you're not into tomato-based uh, substances, or for some reason you can't have tomato-based uh, uh, foods, you can certainly still have pizza. You can get a white pizza. You can have like mm-hmm. a pesto-based pizza. Um, and I, w- I would agree that the, the pizza, the, not a controversial opinion here, is pretty great. Yeah. Uh, and and I would expand that to to when I say pizza, did not just mean like literal pizza, and also some of the sort of um, turf wars between like one pizza uh, uh, tradition and another. But if you just take in into account like all flatbread based foods, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a perfect formula. You know, actually thinking about food aversions of this type, though, it's making me wonder, like, what is the psychological basis of food aversion? Like, how is a food you don't like represented in the brain? Because just remembering my childhood, so there were so many things I didn't want to eat because I thought I didn't like tomatoes, but like, I loved tomato salsa, and Mm. I would eat pizza that had tomato sauce on it. It was like a tomato worked as a sauce or something, like if it was in liquid form, but I didn't want chunks of tomato, I think. <laughs> I don't yeah. even know why that would be. Like, what's happening in my little kid brain to cause me to to, to feel like that? I mean, it's a pretty complex issue. I know there's been some some papers written on this. I know some of it comes down to, to textures, and, uh, and, and I'm not sure in, in all cases what the exact... Uh, principle is there i mean sometimes it's something to do with the 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 pat the actual like physical palate of the mouth uh, i've also read that of course when you're getting into things like spices and more complex flavors uh you know part of that of course is a it, it's literally a, a, a developed taste but in mm-hmm. other cases i think there's a strong argument that like a small child could not survive a dose of a uh, of a poison that might otherwise be okay in a in an adult's body, and therefore uh, they have to be more selective in what they will actually tolerate. Oh, interesting. Yeah, low, lower body mass means that you, you you have to protect yourself more with your mouth. Yeah. Now I haven't actually looked at at the the research on that, so I don't know if that's uh, a popular opinion right now, or a, you know, popular hypothesis, or if they're. Uh, you know, it's the kind of thing we we'd have to perhaps come back and discuss in greater detail. Mm-hmm. But very, I mean, you do have kids, little kids that are all in on spice, but a lot of kids seem to be, you know, kind of they have to ease into it. You have to develop that spice taste over time. All right, this next message was in response to the Moses effect. This is from Shannon. If you didn't catch that recent Vault episode, the Moses effect, again, is a phenomenon that falls under the category of knowledge neglect, where if you ask somebody how many of each type of animal did Moses take onto the ark, most people will say two, even though they know that it was in the story it was Noah and not Moses. So you just mm-hmm. like ignore that part of the question. It just like doesn't even register in your mind. Right. Um, so, uh, so Shannon says, hi, guys. I don't know if you explicitly mentioned it, but it seems to me that the Moses effect is dramatically lowered when a foreign language is involved. Hmm. I speak German, and if I were to translate a question to or from English, I know that I would detect the trickery much more quickly than if I simply answered. When I was more fluent in German, I might have been more prone to fall for the deception. I assume the same is true for any non-native English speaker, that they would notice that Moses is the incorrect actor in the question. I think the implication of this is that the trickery in the Moses illusion relies on fluency, and the trickster, quote, surfs the wave 
of that fluency to get past our usual breakers. Thanks for all you do, Shannon. Uh, yeah, I'd say uh, on his face that that totally makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's been a while since we did that episode, so I don't remember for sure, but I think some of the studies that looked at the Moses effect uh, looked into whether altering processing fluency, like doing something to make it harder to understand the question or make it go slower as you absorb it, uh, would increase people's uh, chance of, of noticing it. But uh, again, I don't remember. It's been a bit. All right. As some of you know, uh, we have a Discord uh, message board. Is that what you call it? Or we have a Discord, uh, I guess I is know. maybe the way of saying it. Um, I've still never been there. <laughs> yeah, I, I poke around in there and there's a, a, a number of uh, users in there. It's, it's very chill. If you are interested in joining the Discord, just shoot us an email using the email address at the end of this episode and uh, I'll shoot you back the invite code because um, I don't think there's a way to just automatically point you to it. Uh, but anyway, we heard from a listener by the name of Evie. Evie writes in uh, and says the following. From the episode Music and Memory, Rob mentions a song in the beginning, uh, M9. Uh, this is uh, by Boards of Canada from A Few Old Tunes, Volume 1, 1996. Uh, they include a link to both the uh, the Discogs page about it, uh, discogs.com, of course, a tremendous resource anytime you're, you're researching uh, albums and artists and in particular releases and so forth. And uh, they also include um, a YouTube clip. Uh, and they say, this song reminded me of music featured in the computer animated movie, The Mind's Eye, 1990. The similarities in the music were not as close as I originally thought, but I figured you all might enjoy this classic and maybe someone will hear the song M9 and spark a memory of something else uh, that gets closer. And for your auditory and visual pleasure, here's the sequel, Beyond the Mind's Eye, and they include a link to that as well. Um, Joe, do you remember the Mind's Eye? Uh, not by title alone. I don't know. Maybe if I watched it. So this was, uh, especially the first one, I, I've... I've kind of fondly remember because there were a lot of TV ads for it. You could, mm -hmm. you could send off to get a copy of this. It was a, <laughs> like a VHS uh, of all of this just cutting edge computer animation stuff that I don't know. I haven't, I haven't rewatched all of it, but uh, some of it would probably come off uh, a bit rough by today's standards for sure. Uh, but it, you know, it's very like dreamy and kind of new agey and futuristic and I had to look it up. Um, uh, one James Reynolds did the music for the first one. I think some different artists were involved in music for the subsequent releases. Uh, but uh, yeah, this one, this one was uh, advertised all over the place. And I think I maybe rented it from a VHS store at some point. Hmm. So this was like a mail order uh, computer animation clip show. Yeah, yeah. There was like an eight hundred number you could call, and you could order your own copy of The Mind's Eye. And uh, I remember at the time, it was like you would, you would see these commercials and you're like, wow, the future is here. Look at this. It's like pure moods for the eyes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I would, uh, I would very much cl classify it in the same category. Yeah, pure moods is a, another one of those that uh, this, uh, pure moods was a purely a, a, a musical release, of course. Right. But um, uh, there were a lot of TV ads for it and it had, had some great tracks on it. I still think about pure <laughs> moods at least once a month. Uh, wait, my memory can't be right because I'm remembering it had like the Exorcist theme and the mm -hmm. theme from the X Files, but also Inya and stuff oh, on it. It was pretty great. Great, I, I definitely it had, had all a copy of, that of it. Together? 
Okay. Yeah, and it, I think it actually it introduced me to a number of these artists. Uh, yeah, you had uh, Enigma, uh, Anya, um, uh, you, uh, a number of big uh, evangelists is on there, Mike uh, um, uh, Oldfield, uh, Ennio Morricone, The Orb, uh, Brian Eno. <laughs> uh, you also got a little Kenny G in there. But um, yeah, a, a lot of uh, big names in sort of the, like the new age and electronic uh, 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 you know, world. Um, huh. Yeah, tubular bells, part one, being the Exorcist theme song. See, now I want to listen to it. I can practically, I can hear that Enigma song, "Return to Innocence," uh, just pounding through my head now. Wow, what a strange idea! But like, I don't know. I just it was one of those things you see it on TV as a kid. You're just like, okay, this is what culture is. Yeah, yeah. This this is the world I was born into. <laughs> Let's see, Rob, I'm taking a look at some of these other messages you uh, brought in from the Discord, since uh, I, I haven't seen these before. Oh, we have one from Robin, tying back to uh, Jim's message about the about the Ketchup uh, Vault episode. Robin says, with regards to the Ketchup episode, if you folks have not yet tried kimchi on your hot dog type food of choice, <laughs> I will highly recommend it. Uh, well, Robin, I'd go right along with that because obviously, you know, a cabbage type vegetable, uh, especially in some sort of fermented or, or dressed form works well on a hot dog. Some people put coleslaw on there or uh, sauerkraut. Yeah, kimchi works great as well. But then Robin goes on to say, um, may I also recommend squigging some QP Japanese style mayo on there in keeping with Joe's recommended gochujang and mayo dipping sauce? Um I don't think I've ever tried exactly that. QP uh, spelled uh, K-E-W-P-I-E in, in English is a, I don't know how exactly it's different than just uh, regular American mayonnaise, but uh, but there, there's something different about it. It has a different kind of richness or, or something. Well, the bottle um, looks very cute too. Like I wanted yes. to squeeze it, uh, but, but I don't think I've ever actually had it myself. I always end up using um, mayo or vegan mayo just from the grocery store, uh, but a I, I want to try it. I'm actually having kimchi with mayo on veggie dogs for dinner tonight. So oh, wow. I'm, I'm excited. Well, what a coincidence. Uh, so I don't think I would normally, uh, under regular circumstances, just go with a type of mayonnaise on a hot dog. But yeah, it can go well when paired with other types of condiments, like sharper condiments or something that's acidic, like a, like kimchi or something. Mm-hmm. Um I remember uh, many, many years ago when I went to Iceland, uh, they have a special way of uh, dressing the, the pilser, the hot dogs there, like you would get at basically any uh, any gas station there that's like uh, – there's like – I don't remember, like four or five condiments that go on everything. It includes like some onions and some kind of uh, sharper uh, kind of sweet and sour sauce and then I think also some type of mayonnaise-y uh, creamy sauce. It sounds good. Sounds very good. Anyway, thank you, Robin. All right. Well, it looks like we're out of time. Uh, we, had, we had some Weird House uh, listener mail we wanted to read. But we're going to save that for next time. Uh, and when is next time? Well, it's going to be next Monday. That's when we do listener mail on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We do our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, we do a, a short form artifact or monster fact on Wednesdays. And then on Friday, that is time for Weird House Cinema. That's when we set aside most serious matters and we just discuss a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.